Well, greetings again. Glad that you're here uh, this morning. Uh, special greetings to those uh, who are unable to be physically present uh, here. Uh, blessings to you as well. We have had the delight of spending time in Mark's gospel. We are in Mark chapter 3 uh, this morning. And I have had a great deal of fun uh, looking uh, at this gospel. And part of the reason I've had a great deal of fun is because Mark seems to me, or is seeming more and more to me, uh, to be the most uh, literary astute writer in the Bible. I suppose uh, that's saying a bit too much, uh, exaggerating a bit, but I have really enjoyed seeing how Mark, led by the Holy Spirit, has crafted this story of our Lord and Savior. We're looking at just six verses this morning, and I'm going to ask that you would pay attention to every detail. We ought to always in God's Word, but uh, pay attention uh, particularly to how Mark puts this scene together. Who's standing where? Uh, who is doing what? What happens at the beginning? What happens at the very end? The scene is rich in imagery. Well, what we'll see in this passage is that uh, this is now the fifth question that Jesus has posed in this gospel so far. Uh, this is a question that he poses in order to uh, expose our ignorance and to expose our need for his authority to not be served, but to serve us and to save us. So we're looking at a question, and in this question, Jesus is exposing uh, his own authority and is exposing our need for that authority. Well, little theologians, you're going to be drawing while I preach, I hope, and what I'd like for you to draw is a wind-up toy. Uh, again, I think I may have asked you to draw this in the past. Uh, you know what a wind-up toy is. Uh, it's what people uh, my age and older played with when we were younger. You wind them up, and it's a mouse that, like, uh, shuffles across the floor or a little car. Uh, draw a wind-up toy. You wind it up, and you let it go. You know, if you wind it too much, it makes really loud clicking noises. And if you keep winding it too much, you're going to break it. So how about you draw a wind-up toy that you've already broken? Okay, we'll leave it at that. Our passage this morning is in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Would you please join me in prayer before we read this passage? Again, Jesus, here we are, thanking you for speaking to us. Speak to us more and more, Jesus. Make us to understand the goodness of the gospel. Make us to understand your power to save. Make us to understand our need for your discipleship over the course of this new week coming up. And would you do all of those things gently by the work of your Spirit. In your name, Jesus. Amen. In Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. 
He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is the word of our Lord. Well, I wonder if you've ever been to a social event in which it's clear that there's some tension in the air. You're not sure where it's coming from. Let's say it's an event attended by many people, but you can sense that there's something uh, in the air. And no one's really talking about it. No one is outright disagreeing with one another, but you can just kind of sense the tension. You know, we live in an era currently in which there's a great deal of tension in the air. We're thinking about uh, an election that's coming up, and uh, politics today seems to be rather raucous. I was thinking even as Pastor Hill was uh, praying for political figures, just the, the very notion of mentioning these names publicly, there's a sense of tension that's all around us. But we're coming up on Christmas, uh, office parties and social gatherings and uh, gatherings with family. Have you ever felt in a crowd of people that there's some kind of tension? Now, everyone has to be nice, everyone has to be cordial, but you can kind of feel it. And I want us in this passage to sense the tension of this scene. It's really remarkable, though, this passage is. There's just six verses. But in those six verses, I'm again speaking to you as an English major, there's actually a lot of verbs. You know, verbs are action words. But there's six verses, and there doesn't seem to be very much that's happening at all, but Mark gives us so many verbs, and yet very little movement, almost uh, micro-actions all over the place, like the movement of eyes. We see that in a couple places. And at the same time, in this passage, there is a, a vocabulary that's a little bit frictional, There's not much speaking in this passage, but as Mark tells the story, there's an image of someone with a shriveled hand, but there's uh, also uh, accusation that is happening in hearts, and there's uh, mention by Jesus of saving life or killing. And then at the very end, there's this plot to destroy the life of another human. There's tension in the scene. And of course, it develops very slowly. There's very, very little action. But then at the end, everything just kind of cataclysmically happens quickly. Verse 6, something really dramatic happens. It really is like a social event. There's an elephant in the room, and no one wants to bring it up, but it's happening. There's tension right here. And Jesus, he understands all of this. He sees with perfect clarity, and he knows what's going on. And what Jesus does is he reveals this tension. He, he sets up an opportunity for this tension to just explode all over the place. Jesus, he's not going to be neat and tidy and civil and gloss over everything. There's tension in this passage. And Jesus, he actually makes it more tense by his behavior and his words. And then uh, Jesus leads us into release at the end of the passage. So tension and more tension and release. That's how I've structured the sermon, by the way. But let me say a couple of things about Christianity in general. We really ought to expect Christianity to do exactly this. If you're here this morning as a Christian, why is it that evangelism is so very difficult? It is difficult, and it's difficult because Christianity is a call for all or nothing. It's a proposition of uh, everything or nothing at all. Christianity is by trusting Jesus, but trusting Jesus alone, which means that every human effort must be set aside before you'll believe in Jesus. 
As Christians, we know that evangelism is very difficult. There's a tension in evangelism. Faith is beautiful and wonderful, and we make an offer of the gospel so, such that there might be a response of faith. But repentance is hard. But repentance is also a call of the gospel, isn't it? Faith and repentance are what is offered in the gospel. Faith but also turning away, repenting, leaving behind all those things that you used to put your trust in. <laughs> so the elephant in the room, so to speak, is that Christianity is very hard to believe. The elephant in the room is that Christian faith actually overturns your entire world. It's difficult to believe in Jesus because to do so means a disbelief or a rejection of every other path of salvation that you've possibly grabbed hold of. Your works, your intentions, your morals, your family, your status, all of those things must be repented of in order to be saved. Well, that's the whole point, isn't it? It's not actually hard to believe in Jesus. It's impossible to believe in Jesus. That's really what we believe. We believe as Christians that uh, conversion is something that takes place by the operation of the Holy Spirit, the softening of the heart, the, uh, dr the perhaps nourishment of the shriveled hand because the shriveled hand can never embrace Jesus. It must be healed. And what we need is the Holy Spirit to soften and energize our shriveled, dried-up hearts so that we might respond in faith and repentance. The Christian belief is striking. It overturns everything about ourselves, everything about our world. If, if truth be told, we'll actually do anything to not believe in Jesus, anything at all. And in verse 6, look what happens. The Pharisees, they plot to kill Jesus rather than repent and believe. But when you give up every effort, verse 4 shows us that Jesus doesn't merely make life possible. Jesus saves our lives. The one who offends you because he insists that you set aside all of your efforts, well, he's also the one who saves you, the one who gives you life. And the hardness of that truth is the elephant in the room because Christian belief overturns everything about ourselves and about our world. And if truth be told, we'll do anything to not believe in Jesus. And Jesus highlights that very truth right here in this scene. And you see immediately, in beginning in verses 1 and 2, the development of a kind of tension in the room. It's going to get more tense, but notice at the very beginning of the passage what Mark tells us. Jesus, he enters, and he seems to enter alone, doesn't he? I mean, surely his disciples are with him. Uh, Peter, he must be with Jesus as he enters this synagogue because Peter is the one who's giving Mark this information. But notice that as Jesus enters, there are folks that are already there. And Mark's very clear, the Pharisees, you see that. The Pharisees are already there in that synagogue on the Sabbath. That makes a fair amount of sense, doesn't it? But not only is, it, uh, is the Pharisees uh, those who are present already, but there's also a man whom we've never met before. And the man, we're not given his name, we're given actually a physical feature of his body. We're told that this is a man with a withered hand. In the Greek, it's a hand that is dried up, that's shriveled. 
Now, presumably a hand would be something, if you're wearing a robe, would be rather easy to conceal, wouldn't it? Slip it behind the fold of a robe, and you wouldn't necessarily lead off with that hand. It may be that he's trying to conceal that hand, but Mark, he wants us to know that there's a man there with a withered hand. And perhaps he's a regular attendee of the synagogue. Clearly, though, his situation's not life-threatening. He's just a man with a withered hand. And he may have been there last week and the week before. But this scene, it develops very, very subtly. The, the events, the, the, the social interactions, they, they become rather uh, tense. Now, uh, when you're in a social setting and there's something in the air, a kind of tension, perhaps two people uh, who are struggling in a relationship with one another, you know that from body language, these little cues that uh, because we're social animals, we tend to pick up on raised eyebrow, fidgeting fingers, shuffling of feet, it's loud speech from the corner of a room or an awkward laugh, a snide comment. These are all these very small things that subtly reveal what's really happening. And if you look in verse 2, what you see is you see movement, but it's the movement of eyes. The Pharisees are watching Jesus. Why are they watching Jesus? It's small, isn't it? But Mark actually tells us why they're watching Jesus. Mark gives us the motivation behind that movement of their eyes to trace the steps of Jesus. And he tells us that they're accusing Jesus. They're looking for an opportunity. But in fact, they've already accused him, and so they're watching him. The body language actually shows a motivation, but the body language is very slight. Uh, look, if you would, at verse 6. We see something very similar. We see uh, the movement not of eyes, but the movement of feet. The Pharisees went out. But that body language, it's more than the movement of eyes, but it still reveals something about their heart. And right after they leave, what does Mark tell us? Well, they begin to counsel with the Herodians how to destroy him. The motives of their heart are made clear by that small movement, the movement of their feet as they exit. We'll look back again at verse 2. They watched Jesus and the way Mark tells us this is he, says, is he uses a verb in an imperfect tense. It's an unfinished action. They're watching Jesus, but there's something unfinished about that. Mark, is, Mark has us hanging in suspense. Why are they watching Jesus? What are they up to? And the tension builds. And they watch him, Mark says, so that they might accuse him. They might bring charges. And already we're beginning to sense that these guys, they're up to no good. Now, if we knew uh, a Jewish practice is a bit better, if we knew the, the interpretation of the Jewish law, uh, we would know that what Jesus is about to do is something that could, be, uh, could land him in an awful lot of trouble. The accusation is actually legitimate. Because this man with a withered hand, he doesn't have a life-threatening illness. Which means Jesus cannot heal him. Because if he heals on the Sabbath and it's not life-threatening, he's actually broken the, the uh, Jewish interpretation of the Old Testament law. And Jesus knows this as well. Now, are you especially paying attention to these watching eyes of the Pharisees? And so in just these two verses, you have this great tension. Need I remind you, it's supposed to be a worship service. 
That's what they're supposed to be doing. It's supposed to be a worship service, but there's all this subtext. The ruler of the synagogue or the elder of the congregation is supposed to be leading a, a beautiful call to worship. A prayer, an attendant would be handing scrolls to the various readers. There'd be a reading of the weekly scripture. There'd be pronouncement of blessings, leading in singing. And all of this, it happens up front. And Jesus, who is one of the last ones to walk in, apparently causes the eyes of the Pharisees to turn away from worship to watch Jesus that they might accuse him. There's a lot of tension in this small synagogue right now. But notice what Jesus does. We want to look at verses 3 through 6, and we want to notice how Jesus doesn't defuse the situation. He actually makes it worse. And then we want to look back at verses 3 through 6, and uh, we want to consider this from the perspective of that man with a withered hand. But let's set him aside for a moment and, and notice that Jesus, he doesn't defuse the situation. You know, there's some people who are able to uh, walk into a dicey situation and they're excellent conversationalists, they're very witty, and they're able to turn the topic away from the taboo subject or away from the elephant in the room, uh, shove the elephant to the corner of the room in a very gentle way. We know people like this. Jesus, he'll have none of it. Jesus intensifies things. He actually makes a command in verse 3. He commands that man with a withered hand. Notice that the withered hand is mentioned twice in just these six verses. Jesus, he commands the man with a withered hand. Come here, he says in verse 3. Just two words in the English, but in the Greek there's four words, way too many words. Jesus, be succinct. If you look at the NIV, by the way, for verse 3, I, I think this, this really is, a, is the more uh, better translation. The NIV says, Jesus commanded, stand up in front of everyone. Stand up in front of everyone. That's really what Jesus is commanding this man to do. So uh, those of you who are here this morning who get squeamish in conflict, squeamish when things get a little bit tense in any environment and want to withdraw, this is when you leave the synagogue. I'm just telling you. This is when you leave. Because Jesus is now leading the worship service. He's preaching. He's actually uh, preaching in a way in which he's preaching well. He's expositing a text. He's recalling a very famous sermon that was delivered by Moses centuries and centuries ago. And in that sermon, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses, who has just explained the wonderful promise-keeping faithfulness of God, Moses, in chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, he reminds the people that they are a people who need to make a decision. And Jesus, he seems to go right to that passage, and he begins to explain it. He's leading now the worship service in the synagogue, and he's making people very uncomfortable. Let me, if you'll allow me, read that passage from Deuteronomy. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 19, right on the edge of the promised land. The people are about to go in, and, and Moses has preached to them. And then he says this. He says, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. This is Deuteronomy 30, 15 through 19. Moses goes on, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, 
I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. What a great appeal to a people. You know, we usually think of, Deuter of uh, Joshua chapter 24. As for me and my household, we will follow the Lord. Uh, some of you have that as a little plaque in your entryway or on the front of your house by the door. As for me and my house, we will follow the Lord. And that's a similar passage in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And Jesus, he actually elevates Moses' question. And Jesus says in verse 4, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? Evil. To save life, deliver life from harm, or to kill life? Well, that's Moses' question. Are you about life or are you about death? Which is pleasing before Moses? Well, Moses has said, therefore, choose life. That's the question that Jesus poses. It's an expositional sermon. Is today a day that we choose life to obey and love God, or is it a day in which we choose death to turn from him and to worship other gods? This is the elephant in the room, and this is why Christianity is so very awkward. You see, Christianity poses only two options. Will you set aside everything, including yourself, to love and obey God alone? Or will you keep yourself and will you keep everything, making them your gods? One leads to eternal life and one leads to eternal separation. And the response in the synagogue you see in verse 5, don't you? There's silence. Silence. If you were there as a follower of Jesus, how might you respond? I think I might respond this way. I might raise my hand and say, Jesus, Moses would want us to choose life. I choose life. I mean, I hope I'd have the presence of mind to say that. Now, of course, I can say that. But there's silence, isn't there? But Jesus really is addressing the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, they actually uh, offer their response, but it's delayed. It's in, chapter, or it's in verse 6. They make their response by actually choosing death. Isn't that remarkable? Who would ever choose death? They choose death to kill Jesus. They actually um, align themselves with the Herodians to do exactly that. Now, the Bible calls this refusal to uh, accept life that's offered by the covenant-keeping uh, God. The Bible calls this hardness of heart. It's a pretty rare word in the New Testament. But the image is all over the Old Testament. It refers to this process of hardening, a gradual onset of some kind of disability, like a shriveling or drying up, or like a wet leather that becomes dry and hard and brittle, and then it will ultimately break. The hardness of heart is a stubbornness that if you're not careful, it can actually become deeper over time and you dig in your heels resolutely and to the very end. The Bible says that this is what unbelief looks like. It's a refusal to repent and believe in Jesus. It's foolish, it's irrational, it's illogical, because it puts all hope for peace, all hope for happiness, all hope for anything that is good and decent. It puts all of that, well, it puts that hope in things in best wishes, in yourself. This is unbelief, and it's not very secure. Over time, the Bible says that it digs in its heels, doesn't it? 
I think some of us know what that feels like. Well, what Jesus does is Jesus takes a message of Moses that was preached in the wilderness, and Jesus, he refashions that question. He asks that very question, will you serve God alone? And there's silence. So Jesus, he's intensified the moment, but he's going to provide a release for the moment. And so Jesus, he has uh, preached uh, this uh, gospel of Moses, and he's done this in a very tense environment. Uh, the release of the tension is nothing other than the very obedience of Jesus. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Who's standing in the middle of the room right now? All eyes are on him. All eyes are watching this man with a shriveled hand. But do you notice that Jesus' eyes aren't on this man? I think that's significant. Jesus' eyes are on a watching world. He's looking at them. And he's not just looking at them. Jesus is actually uh, seeing their hearts. And all of them are looking at the man with a shriveled hand. You know, it would make sense, wouldn't it, that a man with a shriveled hand would try to avoid this at any and all costs. I can only imagine what a person with a developmental or a physical disability feels like in the presence of crowds. I'm not sure it's always a delightful experience. And Jesus, he has just interrupted the worship service with a worship service of his own. And he's placed every eye on this man with a physical disability. He's the only man in the room who wants this least of all. And this man, he can feel all of those eyes that are on him. I wonder if he can feel that Jesus' eyes are not on him. Verse 5, Jesus, he looks around at everyone else, everyone, but particularly the Pharisees. And as he looks around, Jesus, he is angry, but he's also grieved, or literally full of pity. He's angry, wrathful, but he's compassionate. He's full of pity. And his anger is very justified. These are the religious leaders of the people, and they're proving themselves to be the kinds of people who would disregard Moses and say, Moses, no, we won't serve that God. We'll serve our own God. Jesus' anger is justified. But do you think that his grief and his pity is justified? Jesus is the kind of man who can carry the laws of God forward, who can be uh, angry, but he's also the kind of man who is filled with pity, who has the ability to sympathize, has the ability to hurt with and even for others. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, take note of that. How else do we see anger and pity so utterly tied together if we don't see that in Jesus? Well, this is part of the power of Jesus. You see, uh, here's what I think we're learning in this scene. I am approaching the scene as a Christian, and many of you are as well. That Christianity is about our ability to understand um, how ourselves are present in this man who's in the center, this man with the shriveled hand. Because a man with a shriveled hand can do nothing Nothing. The issue, it seems to be between Jesus and uh, the religious leaders. And the man with the shriveled hand just stands there, exposed and awkward, exactly what he didn't want to have happen. And Jesus, in response of Moses' call in Deuteronomy 30, the question that Moses posed to the people, Jesus is the one who responds with life. 
He is the one who's obedient to Moses. He is the one who's obedient to God. He chooses to save life by worshiping and serving God alone. Those things, they work together. He serves God by saving life. That's what Moses is asking. And Jesus, he obeys. And he saves others. His obedience before God, listening to the sermon of Moses, his obedience is the kind of obedience that has the power to not only marry anger and pity, but the kind of obedience that has the power to nourish dried-up hands. And so he says to the man who has been enduring this spectacle painfully, exposed, lonely, and Jesus says to him in verse 5, stretch out your hand. Doesn't that sound beautiful? It sounds absolutely wonderful. He merely needs to stretch out his hand. But can I remind you of something? Of all the things this man might be able to do, this is the one thing we know he cannot do. Twice we have been told that his hand is shriveled and dried up. This man may be a gifted artist, and Jesus says, draw us a nice picture, or a gifted speaker, and uh, give us a nice talk. We don't know the man, but the one thing we know about him is that he cannot do what Jesus tells him to do in verse 5. Does that stand out to you at all? It should, very much so. His hand, it's shriveled. He can't can't stretch it out. As if someone would uh, bump into him and say, your hand, it looks a bit shriveled up. Have Have you tried to, hmm, have you tried? It's the one thing he can't do. And this is what Christian belief is like. Christian belief overturns everything we know about ourselves and about the world. We'll do anything to not believe in Jesus because that seems to make sense to us. And believing in Jesus seems so very difficult, even impossible. But Jesus, he makes the impossible possible. When he chooses a life of obedience and service to God, that which is permanently dried up, it's stretched out. That includes hands, but especially hearts. When Jesus obeys, we have life. That's the gospel. I cannot obey. I cannot stretch out my hand. But by the power of Jesus, his anger and his pity, they're enmeshed together and he obeys the Father. And the Father keeps all of his promises because of the obedience of the Son. You see, Moses is preparing us to see Jesus, the one who truly can choose life. And this is the elephant in the room. (laughs) We're going to avoid Jesus at all costs so that we might worship things that are trite. And we're going to dig our heels in over time. And if we're not careful, this will happen right up to the expiration of our lives. And then we will be eternally separated from God. But all of us need to hear this morning that nothing is impossible with God. Understand this, every person will be asked to deal with the problem of Jesus. You cannot just coast your way through life, avoiding all conflict and taking that path which justifies yourself. These are the means of peace and happiness. That won't always last. The Bible says when you do so, you're digging in your heels more and more and more. And you need to consider that if that is you this morning. Now's the time to believe in him. Now's the time to believe in Jesus, uh, the one who has the power to untangle that heart, that that heart would love that which truly can give peace and happiness. Pray and ask Jesus 
talk to people here who profess faith in Jesus. How is it that this man has the ability to unshrivel my heart and save me? But there's another truth here, and this is what I'd like to finish with. As believers, we need to be reminded that who we are as Christians is not simply smart people who woke up one day and thought, you know what, I've never tried this. I'll stretch out my hand. I've never tried that. I can't believe I've never tried that. Here, 52 years old. We don't believe that as Christians, but sometimes we function that way. We think that we are uh, Christians because we're smart people who've chosen the right path. We've evaluated all the others. We've set them aside. That's what my repentance is. And when we doubt, well, it's painful, isn't it? But when we doubt as Christians, we need to be reminded that you're not a Christian because you're such a smart person who's chosen the right path. Peter knows that his profession of faith in Jesus is not the profession of faith that flesh can make known. It is the work of the Spirit. This is why Scripture tells us that we are elect, predestinated, chosen. This is why Scripture tells us that God is sovereign, not just over creation, but sovereign over salvation. And this is what we need to remind ourselves to become a Christian. While it's impossible, it requires the work of the Holy Spirit. And as we doubt, remember, remember who you are. You're not someone who stretched out your hand. You are someone who had your hand stretched. You're not someone who improved your heart. You're someone who had that heart nourished. You're a recipient of God's grace. We see that all in this tense scene in which Jesus holds before someone who is an awful lot like me, the man whose hand was once shriveled. Would you join me in prayer? Father, your word tells us who we are. We are grateful that we are a people who have been saved by the obedience, not of ourselves, but the obedience of Jesus. And Father, we pray for those who have dug in their heels. They've refused to believe in Jesus, and we pray that you would soften their hearts, that you would use the power of the gospel expressed in the life and the words of this small congregation that those who are lost will be found. Father, do this more and more and more in our midst by the power of the obedience of Jesus to unshrivel hearts. In his name, amen.